This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Page 302, middle of letter 17. He was explaining the 13th principle of Jewish faith, which is the belief in the resurrection of the dead. All religions believe in the eternity of the soul, but Judaism is unique that it believes in the eternity of the body. But according to the Jewish tradition, According to Nachmanides and the Kabbalists, the Jewish mystics and the Hasidic masters, the resurrection is the ultimate reward. That is why it is the 13th and final of the 13 principles. First, the 12th principle is the belief in Mashiach. First will be the era of Mashiach, the Messianic era, which will be... And then there will be the, the, uh, the resurrection of the dead. Now, what happens during the resurrection? Those souls that have been in the other world, in the Garden of Eden, in heaven, the souls of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, of the saints and the greatest and the most exalted who have been in heaven, parked in heaven for thousands of years, experiencing ecstasy, delight, basking in their eternal bliss, in the, the glimmer of the ray of God's radiance and in their perception of God's radiance. And they advance each and every day and three times a day and they're constantly growing. And, you know, we think life in this world is busy. We don't, the real life, the soul really begins to live after 120 years. That's when the soul really comes to life. You know, we're like a dull caricature in comparison to the real life that the soul experiences in the, in the heaven. And yet, God is going to tear them away from all that light and all that ecstasy and bring them back to this world? So it can't be that it's a, it's a downgrade. <laughs> it sounds more like a punishment than the ultimate reward. <laughs> You're taking after the soul, after the soul has experienced what the soul experiences. One moment in the world to come, meaning in the afterlife, is worth more than all the pleasures of this world combined. If a person lived a thousand years and was able to indulge in every pleasure under the sun, and was as wealthy as the King Solomon, and it, all the pleasures in the world don't equal to one moment of pleasure, pure spiritual pleasure in the other world of the bliss that the soul experiences. So, it can't be that the soul is being torn away from this bliss to come back to this world. And that's the ultimate reward. Obviously, it's an upgrade. 
And that's what he's explaining. How could you? How could the possible? How is it possible that this is an upgrade? That the soul coming back to the body during the era resurrection, and this is the principle of Jewish faith, the <coughs> ultimate principle, the thirteenth principle of Jewish faith. And this is an essential, such an essential principle, a pillar of Jewish belief. Whoever doesn't believe in that is has no share in the world to come. It's like. It's removed the most essential, one of the most essential pillars in Judaism. Why is this so essential? And why is it such a pillar? And why is how is it possible that the soul, the ultimate reward, will be when the soul comes into this world and will experience something in this world that it cannot experience in the heaven? What could be? A, how is it possible? This world is the lowest of all the worlds. It's the tiniest. It's like, it's like a, a needle hole. In comparison to the other world, the other worlds are like huge, giant receptacles. This world, take the division we find in our world. Take a stone. A stone, there's no sign of life. The only sign of life is a stone is its existence, that it exists. But it sits still for thousands of years, doesn't move. Unless you kick it around, it doesn't move. It stays in one spot. It doesn't grow. There's no sign of, zero sign of life. It's a stone. There's nothing there. Just, just merely that it exists. If you look, then you have higher forms of life, organic life. At least you see a sign of life. The tree is growing. The grass is growing. Then you have a higher form of life, animal life. Animals are roaming around. They feel, they're sentient, they're aware. Then you have higher form of life man has a mind an imagination and then you go higher levels of consciousness and you have you have the angels and you have all different levels of life different spiritual life but the lowest is the stone well our world in the scheme of things in the global scheme of things in the macrocosm our world we're like the stone we're the tiniest, the lowest, and the bottom of the pole. So how is it possible that there'll be a more intense revelation of godliness in this world than all of the upper worlds, other worlds combined? It defies imagination. It defies logic. Counterintuitive. No wonder why all other religions emphasize the spiritual. The ideal is the spiritual, the afterlife. Judaism with revelation. And that's why it took a revelation of God Himself, because it's so counterintuitive. Judaism places the emphasis on the action, the deed. It's the deed that matters most. It's more important than the meditation and the love and the faith. And the, it's the action. Who, would have, who could think, who would have thought that the deed is so important? Who cares about the deed? The deed is like the stone. What's important is the thought, the feeling, the love, the intent. The quality, quantity, the tangible, the physical, the material, sense of touch. So this is completely counterintuitive. How is it possible in this physical world there will be such an intense revelation of godliness that the souls in heaven or in heaven for thousands of years can't wait to return because whatever they're experiencing in heaven pales in comparison to what they're going to experience 
when their soul returns into the body. How is this possible? And that's what we started learning last week. Because he explains there's two different levels, two different ways where God expresses himself. There's one level where God fills all the worlds. Just like the soul. The soul fills the body. What do you mean it fills the body? Meaning it's not like electricity that just runs through the all your appliances are tapping into electricity. It doesn't matter if it's a fridge or if it's a TV or if it's a computer. To the electricity, electricity is indifferent. It doesn't matter if it's giving life, if it's giving, if it's giving energy. Whichever machine, if it's a truck, if it's a bus, if it's a car, if it's a radio, if it's a, your cell phone, to the electricity, it doesn't make any difference. So you can't say that the electricity fills is associated with the appliance. There's no connection. The sun is shining. Does it matter to the sun if the sun is shining into a palace? If the shutters are open, the shutters are shut. If it's a dump, if it's a garbage dump. It doesn't matter. The sun is just doing its thing. It really doesn't, couldn't care less if you're enjoying it. If it's a cloudy day, not a cloudy day. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't change. So you can't say that the sun fills the world. The electricity, the energy fills the world. The energy doesn't fill the world. The energy is just being there. And by its mere presence, it has an effect. And it can have multiple effects, but it makes no difference to the sun. It makes no difference to the energy, to the light. There's effect, there isn't effect. When you say God, the soul fills the body, that means that the soul is enclosed in the body, is engaged in the body. The soul's ability to comprehend is enclosed in the brain. It's not just electricity just passing through and the soul, the same soul, passes through every organ in the body and every organ takes whatever it wants. But it's the same energy. Not true. It doesn't work that way. There's a unique ability of the soul to comprehend and the ability of the soul to comprehend is grabbed and enclosed into the, in the brain. And that's why every organ of the body hurts differently. <laughs> if you're in pain, it's not the same pain. There's a difference if your toe is in pain or your heart is in pain, God forbid, or, or every organ has its own unique sense. Because the energy in each and every organ is unique. That's what it means the soul is enclosed in the body. Just like when you wear clothes, it imba- it embody- you're, you're enclosed by it, you're embodied. You're inside the clothes and you're defined by it and you're limited by it. So too the soul is encloses itself. It's like a teacher engages himself in the student. It's not just the teacher talks and the teacher is just there and he's radiating light. <laughs> If you want, take it. If you don't want, don't take it. That's not the way it works. The teacher is talking to the student, is engaging the student, is thinking about the student, is measuring his words that it should fit in a way that the student should be able to grasp the concept, or should be able to relate to the concept, or should be able to connect with the concept, and he's constantly adjusting and seeing, and he has to appear before, and he has to be totally engaged. It's very taxing. 
engage during the transmission and then afterwards he has to make sure that the student really grasps it. There's a difference before and during and after. Not like the sun or the energy. It doesn't make any difference before, during, after. It means nothing to the sun. It means nothing to the energy. If you take it, you don't take it. If you take more, you take less. But when you're engaged, you're enclosed, you're embodied, then you define yourself. You're defined by it. And that's why we find the, body, the, the mind-body connection. It's a mysterious, miraculous type of connection, but there is that mind-body connection. That the soul is affected by the body. It works both ways. Not only is the body received from the soul, but the soul is also affected by the body. When you're in pain, the soul is in pain. You're, the soul is affected. Because the soul is enclosed in the body. So too, God's energy, God concentrated himself and has this energy that we call a molecule almond that encloses itself into each individual entity, into each individual being that exists in this world, has its own unique energy, divine energy. And that's why every being and every creature in this world has its own unique Hebrew name. The Hebrew name is the channel through which God directs his energy and encloses his energy in the, per- the person or the being or the item that's named. Everything has a name, from a stone up. Every single thing that exists has a name. And the, the Hebrew name is the, the direct channel, the way God channels his energy, and each entity has its own unique energy. It's not the same energy. No, everyone has its own unique name, a unique energy. That's perfectly matches and fits and encloses itself and engages in this individual item, entity with, and with all its characteristic traits and personality traits and with its unique flavor and unique individuality. Everything comes from Hashem. Everything comes from God down to the tiniest detail. It's not just this general God says that everything should come into existence and it comes into existence. No. God spoke ten utterances. He put it into words and letters. He called. We are His language. Every one of us has a unique name. Because God is engaged in a very particular, personal, engaged way. That's what He means, that God fills all the worlds. And, just like in the human body, every organ has its own unique ability to draw down a different aspect of the soul. The brain is perfectly matched to receive the soul's ability to comprehend. The heart is perfectly matched to receive the soul's ability to feel. We feel in the heart to feel. Your heart is heavy. Your heart is excited. It's in the heart. Your heart starts beating and pumping. You feel, you feel good. You feel uh, you know, like a heavy heaviness in your chest. You can physically feel it. It's in your heart. Emotions are not in your pinky. Emotions are in your heart. That's the organ that feels. The brain is the part of you that comprehends. Not your nose, your brain. People have very pretty noses, but if there's nothing up there, they can't comprehend. Every organ has its own unique ability that receives its own, the nose ability to, to smell. Every organ has its own unique ability to receive that soul, unique soul ability. So too, there are many worlds. There's the physical world. Then you have the higher world, the spiritual world. 
and they are able to receive a much greater, just like within this world, you have the stone, and then you have the trees, the organic, they're able to receive a much higher form of energy. That you can see how it grows, you see life is expressed, visibly expressed, the fact that it grows. And then you have a higher form, the animal is a much higher form, because it has the ability to draw down the ability to, of life, of feeling. And then you have the higher ability of man to imagine, comprehend. And you have the angels and the souls and the spiritual realms and the higher levels of consciousness. And the upper world and the higher world are able to receive, experience spirituality. So they're able to draw down a much higher energy. Because they have a much more fine-tuned receptacle. And therefore, they're able to receive a much, much deeper and a much higher form of life. But all of this is included in what we call memalik alaman. God fills all the worlds, encloses himself in the world, particular, individual, specific, perfectly matched, customized, customized energy, custom made to each individual entity. And it's with this energy that God creates this entity and sustains it and gives it its uniqueness and its flavor and its personality and its individuality. But then you have a much higher form of energy, a much deeper form of energy. That's what we're going to learn this week, and that's what we call Seiv of Kalam. Seiv of Kalam means God transcends the world. And to use a human analogy, our whole conscious self is a very, very tiny sliver, minute part of who we are. It's like the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. We think linearly. We develop ideas linearly, one letter at a time, one word at a time. We put one and two and three together. And, and that's our whole universe. That's the world that we live in. Words, concepts, ideas, time, space. It's all based on linear, linear uh, sequential. But then there's a different type of awareness, a different type of reality. Where everything happens simultaneously. We take in thousands of things in one split second. And that's the realm of the subconscious. You know, the closest we get when we see something. You see something, you see the whole thing. When you listen to something, you listen to one word at a time. If you miss one word, you're lost. You miss the connection. Because it's linear. You have to hear one word, which leads to the next word, the next words. But when you see something, you see the whole picture. In one split second, you see the whole. It's a, it's a deeper type of knowledge, a deeper type of awareness. which transcends our ordinary way of thinking and feeling and consciousness. It's like, you know, when you meet someone, you get a sense of that person. That sense could be made up of millions of details. All your interactions with that person over 50 years. But you get one sense in one split second 
it's like you're, you're thinking of, an, of uh, the orchestra that you heard last night. You know, the orchestra was made up of a hundred band, hundred piece band with, with thousands of different musical notes. But when you sense it, you sense it as a whole. You don't break it down into details. You just get a, a whole sense of... So it's more like an instinct, a sense, which is more con- related to the subconscious. Different type of knowledge, different type of awareness. And that's how the human body operates. We are a hundred trillion cells. And they all interact with each other. And it all happens in one split second. <laughs> if you try to delineate and try to linearly try to explain what happens in the body, if you have a zillion years, maybe you'll be able to start explaining. And all of that happens in one split second simultaneously. It's overwhelming. It's, it's the human brain, the neurons, the connections, and they're all connected to each other. Every human brain is more complex than all the galaxies put together. The amount of connections, and it's just, it boggles the mind. And yet it all happens simultaneously. We are oblivious. We're completely oblivious to that whole level of knowledge, of awareness, it completely transcends our vessels. We're too limited, we're too finite to even begin to grasp. We're like reduced. It's like we, our whole consciousness, like taking the ocean and reducing it to a drop. That's what we can handle. We can handle an ocean. It's a roaring ocean. It's too big. It'll shatter us. It'll overwhelm us. So we take this mighty roaring ocean and we reduce it to a faucet, one drop at a time. And we call that life, and we call that reality. And that's our whole, our whole frame of reference, and that's our whole arena of operation. But the truth is, the reality is, life is a roaring ocean. And there's infinite and millions and zillions of things happening in one split second that, that would just make your head spin so quick. We just can't handle it. So we're oblivious to it. So much so, what is the beginning of Consciousness. The beginning of consciousness is when you have that eureka moment. You're puzzling over something, you're troubled by something, you're conflicted over something, you're trying to figure something out, and suddenly a bolt of lightning, a flash, you get an idea, a creative idea, a brilliant idea, something you never thought of. It's like a revelation. It hits you like a t- with a force of, rev- of revelation, and everything feels good. Now, where did this flash come from? I have no clue. It seems like it came out of nowhere. Suddenly a thought pops into your head. You're walking on the beach, you're in the shower, and suddenly something hits you, hits you. A great idea, creative idea. Wonderful. Where did this creative idea come from exactly? I don't know. It just popped into my head. It seems like from nowhere. But of course it didn't come from nowhere. It came from you. But it came from a part of you that you're completely unaware of. You're subconscious. So a person who's open, a person who realizes that my whole consciousness is just the tip of the iceberg. Where is this consciousness rooted in? It has to be rooted in a whole deeper reality that's completely beyond me. Why is it beyond me? Why Why does it elude me? Why am I even clueless of its existence? I don't even know it exists. That while I was puzzling in this idea, my subconscious was puzzling in the idea. I have a whole inner life that I'm completely unaware of. 99.9% 99.9% of the body's functions, we have, we're blissfully, completely unaware 
what the body is doing and how the body manages. And it's just a miracle, and we're completely unaware. We have no clue. The food that we ate, what happened to that food, how it's digested, and how we're breathing, and how everything, the circulation, the blood, the, the veins for the blood, or the... You can circle the whole world. I mean, how many thousands of miles of every one of us and the blood circulates every day. It's a constantly circulating every few minutes. I, I mean, the numbers are so mind-boggling. <laughs> we're a walking miracle. <laughs> and yeah, we're completely oblivious. And we think, we have the habari, we think we're in charge or we're in control. And we're, we're, 99% of what happens is completely beyond, beyond our awareness. And all of it happens, thank, thank you, without our help. Just, just get out of the way and don't interfere. Don't ruin it. And just let the body function and let the body... Uh... So there's a whole level of reality which is transcendent. It transcends our ability to receive our awareness, our consciousness. But the reason we don't feel it is not because it's not real. It's, so, it's because it's primary. That's what he calls save of Kalamun. It transcends the world, but not because it's secondary. Because it's so primary, it's so core and, and essential that we're we completely oblivious to it. Because we can't, it eludes us because we can't handle it. We don't have the tools with which to handle it. So we're completely unaware of it. Not because it's not present or because it's not primary, or because it's not important. It is the most important. It is everything. It is the source. Where is the source of consciousness? Where is the source of creativity? It all comes from the subconscious. What's going on deep down inside that we're completely unaware of. That's really, that's really the dynamic. That's really where it's happening. But we, are, we call it transcendent because we can sense it. So we call it Sevaklava, but not in the sense that it's up there, it's, it's some otherworldly reality. It's, it's so deep and so essential that I don't see it. Like I can't see the forest from the trees. Because I'm in the forest, I, I can't see the forest from the trees. All I see is the tree. So I'm completely oblivious to the forest. So you can't see it. Because when your head is in the soup, you can't smell the soup when your head is in the soup. <laughs> to smell the soup, you've got you to stick your nose out of the soup. So when you're, you can't see it because you're in it and you don't, you don't completely oblivious to it. So from the human analogy, we can understand the same is true with the divine energy. We are the microcosm. We contain the whole universe. Every one of us contains the whole universe within us. From our personal experience, we can understand the same is true with the macrocosm, with the global, with the universe. That God is the soul of the world, and God fills all the world. Every entity has its name, true. But what's the root? What's the source? Where's the inner dynamic? Where's the real life force? Where's the real energy? The real power and energy? Where does that come from? That comes from the level of Seva of Kalamun, where God completely transcends the world. We don't sense it. We don't feel it. We may not even be aware of it. But not because it's not relevant to our lives or because it's otherworldly and it's, we relegate it to a different realm and a different world, a different reality. On the contrary, it's so real. And it's so core, and it's so essential. It's like our subconscious. We're completely oblivious to it. 
because we're too small to see it, to sense it. But it is the center of everything. So God transcends the worlds and He completely encompasses all the worlds. And yet it completely eludes us. We don't sense. And that's the primary energy. And the analogy in the human being would be the soul's ability to desire, to willpower, or the soul's ability to receive pleasure. Pleasure and willpower are the only abilities in the soul that have no specific organ. Every ability of the soul has a specific organ. The ability to see is the eyes. The ability to hear is the, no- is, is, is the ears. To smell, the nose, to taste, to touch. The ability to comprehend, the ability to feel. So everything has a specific organ in the body. Willpower. Where exactly does willpower reside? In your finger? In your pinky? In your brain? In your heart? Whatever you do is motivated by your will. The willpower is behind everything. You want to understand something? You'll understand it. The more you want to understand it, if you really, really desire to understand something, if you desperately want to understand something, even if naturally you're a dunce, and even if naturally you have a very thick, thick-headed, but the willpower is so powerful that we've seen in his history, throughout history, many people who were not naturally inclined, did not have great minds, but because of their sheer willpower, that such a hunger to, for knowledge, and such a hunger to learn and to understand that with their sheer willpower, they developed these most powerful brains. Willpower is behind everything that you do. Whatever you do is motivated by willpower. You find will in every part of the body. You want to go, you want to... Whatever you want, whatever you do in life ultimately is motivated by your will. So there's no particular organ for willpower. And what motivates willpower? It's pleasure. What do you want? You want things that give you pleasure. That's the payoff. Why would someone break his head and try to figure something out? Because at the end of the day, when you figure something out, the pleasure is indescribable. When you figure out a puzzle, you figure out something that's complex and difficult, the pleasure is indescribable. So everything that you do, you want to do someone a favor, you enjoy doing kindness, because it gives you pleasure. Pleasure, the pleasure principle is the ultimate motivation behind everything that you do. So there's no particular organ for pleasure or for will. Because they're expressions of the soul. Where's the soul? The soul is found equally in every part of you. Every one of the hundred trillion cells is alive. Every cell in your body is alive. That life comes from the soul. The soul is, is distributed equally throughout the whole body. There's no particular place for the soul, for that life. There's not a single part of you that, God forbid, is a corpse. Every part of you is alive. Every fiber of your being and every bone in your body is alive. Is saturated and permeated with that life. And that's equally. From the brain to the toe. It's equally alive. And the willpower and the pleasure is the expression of the soul.
So therefore, it's unlimited. Just like the soul is unlimited, the willpower and the pleasure are also unlimited. The soul's ability to comprehend is limited. And therefore, it has a unique organ, a specific organ, the brain. The soul's ability to emote, to feel, is limited. So it has a unique organ, the heart. The soul's ability to see is limited. Willpower and pleasure are not limited. Willpower is an expression of the soul. It's not anything specific. Pleasure. It's the pleasure of the soul. So, therefore, it cannot be contained in any organ. Because inherently it's not limited. It's about the soul. It's not, when I want something, the reason it's important to me is because I want it. Not because of the object that's desired. It's desirable because I desire it. That's willpower. It's about the soul. It's not about the object of desire. So, therefore, it's not limited. It's not defined. It's like the sun shining. The sun, it's about the sun. The sun just is about the sun being itself and expressing itself. And therefore the sun and the energy of the sun cannot be contained and limited and defined. The electricity cannot be contained and limited and defined by whatever is receiving it or benefiting from it. Because it's not about, it's just about the energy just being there and the sun just being itself. And whatever effect it has, is incident, is, it's, it's almost, it's automatic, it's incidental, it's not, directly connected, personally connected to the sun. So willpower and pleasure is very personal, it's very intimate. It's about the soul. And therefore, just like the soul is unlimited, the, the, the willpower and the pleasure, it's an expression of the soul. It's a pure expression of the soul. So it's an unlimited expression of the soul. So it's just the soul expressing itself, being itself. So it can't be contained in any container, in any finite organ, or just like the soul can be contained. The soul is equally found in every cell, in every fiber, every being, every bone in your body. So to the willpower and the pleasure is also found, and that's the ultimate motivation behind everything that you do. So that's an analogy that helps us understand. From our own personal experience, we can relate and connect it with Hashem. We say that God also, there's God, the way God concentrates himself and transmits his energy right, through the Hebrew language and through the Hebrew words and letters and calling everything by a name. And that's the energy in which he clothes himself in the world. But then, what's the source of this energy? What's the root and source and the core energy in the center it's like the global subconscious. That's what we call Soiv of Kalaman. A God transcends the world. It's God's will and God's pleasure that completely transcends the world. It's intimate. It's an expression of Hashem. And it's not limited. And it's not defined. And can't be contained by any, anything finite. And no matter how spiritual you are, it's still finite. The most spiritual being, the most sublime being, the most sublime angel, the highest levels of consciousness, the most ecstatic experience you can imagine, it's all finite, it's all limited. 
You just have a finer tune. You have more fine-tuned. You're more sensitive. Just like the brain is more fine-tuned and more sensitive than the heart. So the brain receives a higher expression of the soul, which is the ability to comprehend. The heart is higher than the rest. So the heart senses the, 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 receives the ability of emotions, of feelings. But the intimate part of Hashem, Hashem himself is infinite and cannot be contained, shaped, enclosed, defined, captured in any way, shape, or form. And this transcendent level is completely eludes our consciousness. Just like the subconscious eludes our consciousness, so too this transcendent level of God eludes even the highest spiritual beings, the most evolved souls, the highest levels of angels. It simply eludes them, completely oblivious, have no way of receiving it. And, you know, this is, with the passing of time, all of this begins to make a lot of sense to us. You know, when Alter Rebbe wrote this 200 years ago, I don't know if they were able to relate to it as well as we could relate to it today because today, and this is the cutting edge of science, of modern physics, has come to the realization that the whole known universe is 4% of the universe. And there's a 4% to 6%. Not that it makes much of a difference. And the analogy they give is, imagine you're standing on the beach and it's, an, it's dark. And you feel the water. In your mind, that's the beginning, the middle, and the end of whatever is there. You see, you feel a little water, and to you, that's it. It's dark outside. You can't even see. You can't even imagine that this is just the beach, and it's a huge ocean. <laughs> This is just the tip of the tip of the tip of the ocean, but there's a huge ocean underneath and behind us. And and what you're seeing is just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. So they say whatever we know, the whole universe that we see, the galaxies and the stars, whatever we're able to detect, whatever we're able to see, now they're realizing this black matter and this black energy and whatever we see, whatever is visible to us, whatever we can register and receive and know about is 4% of the universe. They realize that 96%, not only we can't see, we don't have the tools with which to see. We don't even have the tools, we don't have the ability to see. It completely eludes us. We don't even have... We don't have anything, any container that can capture it, that can detect it, that can sense it. But we know that we don't know. We know that there is a reality out there that's so vast and so huge that everything that we know is a joke, is nothing, insignificant. A drop of the ocean in comparison to the ocean. So multiply that infinite times when it comes to Hashem, to God. Whatever we know, whatever we understand, whatever the higher angels know, whatever the souls know, in the Garden of Eden, whatever they're experiencing, whatever their illumination they have, whatever glimmer of array of godliness that they experience, and their mind-blowing awarenesses and ecstasy and 
earth-shattering experiences, in the most sublime understanding, in the most sublime receptacle, in the most sensitive receptacle, it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what's truly real and the ultimate reality, Hashem Himself. Because we simply don't have the tools. So where, where do we have this revelation of this level of God's transcendent self? That's the level of resurrection. During the era of resurrection, God is going to reveal Himself, His intimate self, His infinite self. And where is He going to reveal it? In this world, in the physical world. And that's why the souls have to leave heaven. They're parked in the Garden of Eden in heaven for thousands of years, experiencing bliss after bliss after bliss, indescribable bliss and pleasure. And and yet, that's nothing in comparison to what the soul will experience when the soul will return to the body in physical form, in this physical earth. Because it's only here that they will get to experience God's transcendent self, His intimate self, His infinite self. It's like they'll be able to access, imagine if we were able to access our subconscious. This is so mind-boggling. It's so, that's why the soul can't wait for the resurrection, for that moment, to be able to come back. And that's the ultimate reward. And that's the ultimate level, which is way beyond so even though this world is so tiny and puny and seemingly insignificant, like a needle hole, how can, you, how can you have such an intense revelation in this little tiny needle hole that we call Earth, in this little rock that we call Earth, which is so like a rock, a stone, so tangible and so coarse and crass and so almost the antithesis of spirituality and everything that's spiritual and refined, and yet this world is going to receive the ultimate revelation that the higher world cannot possibly receive? Firstly, how is it possible? So as the expression goes, a a level of godliness where even the highest worlds, the most spiritual worlds, the most sublime worlds are simply too narrow, cannot contain this level. Because any container, no matter how spiritual it is, cannot contain something that's inherently infinite. God's intimate self. So just like they can't receive it, if God desires, then the stone could receive it. Because we're not receiving it because of anything that we've done or anything of our capacity. We don't have a capacity to receive God himself. No entity, no spiritual entity, no angel, no soul, no... Entity, no creature in the world has the capacity to truly receive God's intimate self, infinite self. It's not possible. It's only because God desired it so. As he calls it, it's an act of tzedakah. It's the ultimate act of tzedakah. It's the ultimate act of charity, God's charity, gratuitous kindness that God on his own will give us because he desires it so. And he'll desire that we should receive Receive Him and receive His infinite self and His intimate self. So if God desired, then even the stone could receive. As a matter of fact, the stone has an advantage. 
because the stone, there's no resistance. <laughs> With the higher forms of life, there's, it gets in the way. It could be interference, like static. Because you get so caught up, you get so distracted in the higher levels, because it's very exciting. Higher levels are very exciting. In its own right, there are higher levels. There are levels of ecstasy and levels of inspiration and levels of revelation and level, levels of understanding and levels of sensitivities that are so powerful, so overwhelming, that you get, you get distracted. The stone doesn't get distracted. There's nothing about the stone. There's nothing to get excited. It's a stone. So therefore, it's, it, it could receive the godly revelation without any interference, without any static. It's like the beautiful analogy of the Baal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, whose yard site is Shavuos, this Sunday. Baal Shem Tov gave a beautiful analogy. He said there was a king who said that whoever wants can come visit me and talk to me from two to four. I have an open door policy, you can come visit So the first one in line is the brilliant, most brilliant mind, the Einstein the Nobel Prize winner, the genius, intellectual revolutionary, he's the first one to the palace. Now, wait a minute. He's never been to the palace before. So firstly, just walking to the palace, getting to the palace, it's like, it's like uh, the Versailles. The flowers. I mean, things that he only read about in books. He sees it and he knows the story behind each plant and behind each tree and how exotic this flower is. It takes him just two hours just to walk through the garden. It's such an experience, such a delight. Because of his scholarship, he knows so much. He's just drinking it all in. And then he gets to the palace. And here he's like stunned. The architecture. He's never seen anything as beautiful as beautiful in his life. He appreciates it. This is from the Roman era and this is from the Greek era and every detail, he drinks it all in. He gets everything and he realizes what everything symbolizes, what everything... He's just blown away by, by this feat of architecture. Then you go into the palace. You don't just walk into the, to the king. There's the antechamber and there's the foyer. And the antechamber and the foyer... There's the most beautiful paintings. World-class paintings. Paintings he's only read about. <laughs> he's studied about. He's never seen in his life. And he knows the story. He knows the history. He knows this artist. And he knows everything about the artist. And this is the most rarest painting in the world. And he's, he's, he's in heaven. Takes him another hour just, just, just to drink everything in. And... By the time he gets to the king's uh, chamber, it's four o'clock, he missed, uh, he missed the appointment. <laughs> then you have the farmer, the peasant, his turn. The peasant doesn't know anything about botany. He knows less about architecture. He knows even less, knows zero about art. It takes him exactly ten minutes to walk through this expansive garden in front of the palace. Takes him another ten minutes to walk through the palace to get to the king's chamber. Two two twenties in the king's chamber, he's talking to the king, and since the scholar never made it, 
So he gets the king to himself. So he sits with the king till four o'clock. He's sitting there. So the question is, at the end of the day, who's ahead of the game? The simple person? Or this brilliant mind, mystic, scholar, philosopher, religious, mystic? The simple person? Because what's the palace all about? What's the garden all about? What's the art all about? It's just the trappings of the king. The king is the heart of the matter. This is what it's all about. So the king needs a beautiful palace and a beautiful art and beautiful trappings to express his majesty, glory. But the heart of the soul of the matter is the king. So the simple person cut through all the red tape, cut through all the externals, and he went straight to the point. And he's sitting there with the king. If I have the king, I have everything that comes with the king. I have the art and I have the music and I have, the, the, I have everything. I got the king. While this wise man got so distracted, got so excited, that he missed the point. He missed the boat. He forgot what it's all about. That's why the upper realms, the higher realms, cannot, is a contradiction. Because they can't receive God's intimate self. They're so busy and they're so excited with the, with the revelations and the ecstasy and the understandings and the levels that they could receive and absorb and they are absorbing on the highest level possible that it interferes. It gets in the way. They miss the point. They don't, can't see Hashem. They miss the forest from the tree. While the simple rock, the simple person in this physical world, there's nothing to get excited about. It's, it's a rock. What's it, what's it to get excited about? It's a pinhole. There's nothing here. You can't, you can't even get anything through here. So this world is the perfect place, the perf- perfect setting where Hashem could reveal His essence, reveal His intimate self, His infinite self, without any boundaries. Because you won't get distracted. And it's, it's exciting. It, it is because Hashem chose it. Not for any other reason. There's no redeeming factor. It's not like Hashem chose the physical because of. There's no because. There's no rhyme. There's no reason. Why would God choose something physical to reveal Himself? But it's only because Hashem chose it. That's what makes it special. That's what makes it whole. And the Hashem said, that's why the simple Jew is superior to the greatest rabbi, mystic, and scholar. And that's why the Torah emphasizes the deed, the action. And the action is worth more and more valuable than all the meditations in the world and all the religious feelings in the world and all the philosophy and all the sublime and the spiritual. Because again, that's a distraction. You get caught up in the... Instead of eating the matzah and Passover, let me sit and close my eyes and soar with the angels and dance with the angels. And let me meditate in the meaning. And let me levitate in the meaning of freedom. And let me close my eyes and go deep into my soul and... If you don't eat the matzah, you're wasting your time. You have to physically eat the matzah, do the mitzvah. You have to physically take the match and light the candles before Shabbos. You have to physically reach your hand into your pocket and give that penny, that hard penny, that dollar, that write that check physically. All the meditation in the world means nothing if there's no deed. Because it's that simple deed that expresses God's essence, God's core, God's will, God's intimate self. This is God's desire. This is a, that's why it could contain God's essence more so than the higher realms in the spiritual.
The radiation of light at the time of the resurrection, however, will become manifest from the level of Sovev Kol Amin, which is not in a state of contraction, measure, and limit, but it is limitless and endless. The concept of Sovev Kol Amin, as has been explained in Likutea Marine chapter 48, is not to be understood literally as resembling a sphere, heaven for fan. This superior order of life does not encompass all worlds spatially so that it surrounds creation and remains exterior to it. Rather, it means that it is not invested implying adaptation within it. Instead of contracting itself to match the receptive capacity of the particular created being that it animates, it affects it even from within, while remaining on its own level. Note there carefully. And this is the meaning of the teaching of our sages of blessed memory in the world to come. Here, meaning Ganeden, there is no eating and drinking, but the righteous sit with their crown on their heads, and they take delight in the radiance of the divine presence. A crown, Atara, is something that encompasses and encircles. This refers to an illumination that neither contracts nor adapts itself so that it can be vested in varying degrees within created beings. Rather, it descends to the worlds and encompasses them all equally and is called Keter as related to Koteret, the capital which crowns a calm, as in the base Hamikdash built by King Salomon in chapter 7. Atara is thus a crown worn on the head, while Keter means, as well, the crown atop a column. Since the illumination of light from the sphera of Keter that will be revealed in the world to come results from the performance of the mitzvot that are likened to 620 columns of light corresponding to the 613 Torah commandments and the seven rabbinic commandments, numerically equal to the word Keter. The Alter Rebbe also explains the term crown as it applies to a column. The sphera of Keter is an intermediary which joins the radiation and revelation of the emanator, the blessed Ensof, to the emanated beings in the world of Atsilut. The emanator is infinite, while the emanated beings, which are within a world, and even the loftiest of world is bound by limitations, are finite. There must therefore be an intermediary between the two. It is the sphera of Keter that serves as this intermediary, for its internal dimensions is related to the emanator and its external dimension is related to the emanated beings. It is thus through the sphera of Keter that the infinite, Ensof, is drawn into the world of Atsilut and to the emanated beings which populate it. And in the future, it will radiate and become revealed in this world to all the righteous who will rise with the resurrection. And people are all righteous. This is from the introduction to Ethics of Our Fathers. It's the Mishnah and Sanhedrin that says that every Jew is righteous. 
every Jew will have a share in the world to come. And that's referring to the era of resurrection. Because not everyone has a share in the Garden of Eden. Because the Garden of Eden, that's where the soul studies Torah. So that depends on the level of the soul, whatever the soul achieved in this world. And accordingly, the soul will bask and enjoy and receive the light and pleasure. So therefore, not everyone will be included. Those who study Torah will have the merit versus the era of resurrection comes about as a result of the mitzvot, of the deeds. And every Jew, as the Talmud says, is filled with good deeds like a pomegranate is filled with seeds. So every single Jew will merit the resurrection because it's the deeds which connects with Hashem's intimate self, with His personal self, with His infinite self, And that will be revealed, God will reveal himself during the time of the resurrection. And that's how he describes it, that that we'll be sitting and we'll have crowns on our head. Why is he referred to it as crowns? Because a crown is above, a keter is a crown, it's above your head. It transcends your head, it transcends your mind. In other words, it's a level that transcends the mind, that cannot be contained, cannot be enclosed and adapted and finite and limited, but it's, it's something like a circle. That's why a circle is the ultimate sign of infinity, because it has no beginning and has no middle and has no end. There's no point that you can point to the beginning, a middle, and end. It's infinite. So Keter represents the revelation of God's infinite self. And therefore it's above us, it's above our heads. We wear the crown on top of our heads, on top of the columns, on top, it's above, it's over. And that's the level that's the intermediary between God's infinite self and the worlds, starting with the highest world, the world of emanation, which is nevertheless a world a world that's defined, a world that has ten svirot, that has ten attributes, versus God himself is infinite. God is transcendent. God is undefined. So So how do you get from the undefined to the world of emanation, even the world of emanation, with its ten svirot, ten and not eleven, ten and not nine, with a limited number and definitions defined, every sphera, every... Emanation is defined and limited. Not limited, but defined. So how do you get from the infinite to the undefined, to a world, the worlds? Or in the analogy, how do you get from the soul to the consciousness? Conscious mind. So you need... Emimutza means you need an intermediary. When you have two extremes, for example, you have a teacher who's so brilliant, none of the students understand him. So how do, you, how do you get from the teacher to the student? So you need an intermediary. Intermediary is one step below the teacher, 
but he's close enough that he can understand the teacher. And the intermediary is one step above the students. So he can listen to the teacher, then take the idea and interpret it in a language that the students can understand. So he's the connector. He's the connector that connects the teacher with the student. So it's called a mamutza. You need a mamutza. You need something in between. How do I get from here to there? It's like a Grand Canyon. How do I get from the infinite, the undefined, to a world which by definition is defined and limited, 10 and not 9 and not 11. God is infinite and undefined. So that's the level of keter. That's what we call the subconscious. That would be the equivalent of the subconscious. Willpower. Pleasure power. Pleasure principle. So these are very deeply rooted in the soul. It's an expression of the soul. It's not the essence of the soul. It's an expression of the soul. The soul receives pleasure. The soul wants, desires, leans towards this, wants this, desires that. But it's the soul that desires. It's the soul that's receiving pleasure. It's an expression of the soul. It's an intimate expression of the soul. But it's just an expression of the soul. It's not the essence of the soul. So the subconscious is like the intermediary between the soul and the consciousness, our conscious self. So, to God, so to speak, you have the essence of God, which is undefined and infinite and completely undefined and completely transcendent. And then... God emanated from himself the ten spherot. So you have to have, so to speak, an intermediary level, so to speak, in between. And that intermediary step, that's what we call keter. That's what we call God's will. And that's why he said keter is numerical value of 620, corresponding to the 613 mitzvot plus the seven rabbinic mitzvot the mitzvah that we make a blessing over, the seven rabbinic mitzvot, so you have together 620, which expresses God's will. The mitzvot are an expression of God's will. It's intimate. It's God's will. This is what God desires. The world, all the worlds, and even the world of emanation is limited, is finite. But the will is God's, it's in, God's intimate will. Torah, mitzvot, these are God's intimate will and desire. So it's an expression of God's will and God's self. So this is like the intermediary between, this is like the subconscious level is intermediary and it has, it contains elements of both. It contains an element of the infinite because it's undefined. As we explained earlier, the, it's very intimate, it's undefined, it's, it can't be contained, it can't be adapted to, there's no organ, there's no part that could contain it. That can... It's just an expression of yourself, and it's found everywhere, and it's all pervasive, and it's all-encompassing. Pleasure and will is all-encompassing and all-pervasive, and that's what drives everything. It's the center of everything. So it can, it's unlimited in that way, just like the soul is unlimited. But on the other hand, it's an expression of the soul. It's not the essence of the soul. So, it, therefore, that's the intermediary, the subconscious intermediary between the essence of the soul and the consciousness of the soul. So, too, within God, so to speak, the keter, God's will and God's pleasure, is an intermediary between God's essence, which is truly undefined and transcendent, 
and the ten svirot that God emanated from within himself. And this level of keter, this level of the crown, of the circle, of the infinite, this will be revealed to the souls in the future, in the world to come. Which refers to the resurrection, not the Garden of Eden. Because the Garden of Eden is still in the world, is still within the framework of the world, within the way God is revealing himself and adapting himself and is able to be encompassed and enclosed. And... But this level of resurrection, that's when God's crown will be revealed. God's infinite self, God's the subconscious, so to speak, God's subconscious, so to speak, will be revealed. God's intimate self. And that will be revealed to the souls. And that's why it says, when Mashiach will come, the souls will sit. There won't be any eating or drinking. Because eating and drinking represents something you embody, something you internalize, something you take in, you absorb. But this will be such a revelation that he can't absorb it, he can't take it in. There's no vessel that can contain it. But instead, there'll be the crown that will hover over them, will be like this crown who wear these crowns, meaning that we'll experience this revelation of God's crown, of God's keter, of this level of Sev of Kalalman, where God surrounds all the worlds and encompasses all the worlds and is transcendent of all the worlds. So this is the symbolism, the language that the rabbis are using to explain what an intense revelation, to characterize what this revelation is all about, what the era of resurrection is all about. So the best way to characterize what this revelation is all about is that the souls will be sitting in the bodies and the crowns, the heads will be surrounded by the crowns. Which refers to the crown of God. Which refers to God's circle, God's infinite self, God's intimate self. Which will at that time will be revealed to the souls when the soul returns to the body. Only when the soul returns to the body in the time of resurrection. So, who would believe that this lowly life, this lowly body that all religions denigrate, that the Easterns claim is just a Maya, an illusion, and quit while you're behind and confess and go to heaven? And who has time to waste with the body? Why waste your time? The mitzvot, we don't need mitzvot anymore, just have faith and confess, and you'll go to heaven, and Judaism says, are you kidding? This is the holiest. The body is the holiest of all. The physical is the holiest of all. The deed is what matters most, is the holiest of all. This is, what, this is the touch of the divine. This is what connects us with the divine, with the essence. This is Hashem's intimacy. This is Hashem's will. This is Hashem's pleasure. We don't see it today. We don't sense it today. We don't feel it today. But it's our mitzvah that we're doing today that prepares, that lays the groundwork. And we're creating the, the, we're preparing the bed that we're going to lie in. We are preparing the groundwork for this intense revelation of godliness, of God's essence, of God's transcendent self that will come as a result of our good deeds and our life today, Jewish lives, living Jewish lives, doing Jewish, not only feeling Jewish, not only thinking Jewish, not only speaking Jewish, but doing Jewish and living Jewish, the deeds. And this is how we prepare this world and ourselves, our bodies and this world for the most intense revelation 
That's the envy of the highest realms, the highest levels of consciousness. That we will be able to receive a level they're completely oblivious to, they're not even capable of receiving. And we, when the soul will return back into the body, we will be able to receive that level. So this revolutionizes and changes your whole perspective on this world, your whole perspective on the body. It's not something to denigrate, it's not something to look down at. On the contrary, you realize that this body is going to receive the greatest revelation that the soul could be in heaven for thousands of years and it cannot possibly begin to experience. This is something you're only going to hear in Judaism. (laughs) This message, this idea, this concept, this belief, this faith. And that's why, to us, life in this world is the most precious. All other religions is about the afterlife. Life in this world means nothing. Yet for a Jew, you have to give up all 613 mitzvot, with a few exceptions to sustain life in this world. One moment of life in this world is more precious. You have to desecrate Shabbat, eat non-kosher. If it's life and death, it's more important than anything else because life in this world is so precious and so important because this is where it's at. This is where life is at. You want to come face to face with God, the souls in heaven don't know what God looks like. The soul will have to wait only during the resurrection when the soul will come back into the body, into this physical world, that's when we're going to get the most intense revelation of God's intimate self and God's personal self and God's infinite self. This is the meeting ground. This is the place where we marry God. This is the place where we become intimate with God. This is the place where we come face to face with God. Who would have believed? Who would have thought? Never in a million years. You could have meditated for a thousand years. You would never come to such a conclusion. So revelational and so revolutionary and so counterintuitive and the exact opposite of everything you would think this is the truth this is why Mount Sinai is a godly it's called revelation it's a godly revelation it's truth it stuns us it takes us by surprise it's completely out of the box completely we would never reach this real conclusion not only we wouldn't reach this conclusion when God gave the Torah the angels resisted the giving of the Torah because it didn't make sense to them. Why is God paying attention? Why is God giving the Torah to a human being who's finite and limited and full of foibles and ridiculous and absurdities, limited at best, a caricature, a joke, uh, a two-dimensional cartoon in comparison to the reality of the angels, pure, spiritual, sublime realities. Why is God investing himself in giving us the Torah and putting us in the driver's seat and we are the center of the universe. Are you kidding? They couldn't, they couldn't, it didn't make sense to them. They resisted it with everything they had. God silenced them, quieted them and says, yes, you have no clue because angels don't know what God looks like. It's only in this world, in the physical world. This is the rendezvous with God. This is the Garden of Eden. This is where God feels at home. The only place in the universe where God feels at home, ironically and paradoxically, is in this rock, in this physical, earthy, concrete world, in the body. 
in the human flesh and blood. It's quite mind-boggling if you think about it. how much holiness is in the body. As we learned in the first part of Tanya when it says God chose us, he's referring specifically to the body. Because where's God's choice? Where do you sense God's personal choice, his intimate self? That he invested in the body, even more so than the soul. And that's why the soul wants to live. Because the soul appreciates and understands the value of this world, of a soul and a body, of the physical life. One moment of a soul and a body is worth more than all of the Garden of Eden put together. Because only here could we touch the divine. Only here could we come face to face with the essence of God. And this will be revealed during the resurrection. This transcendent degree of divine light with us you feel to be entire to people. Accordingly, the illumination that presently is received only by those beings that inhabit the world of Atzilat will radiate in the world to come to this physical world as well. For unlike the indwelling illumination of God Eden that is dependent on the level of comprehension of each recipient, its revelation is an encompassing light from the sephira of Keter, which does not undergo contraction but radiates all equally. This results in a state of total revelation, whereby the very essence of divinity is visually perceived as it is written. The glory of God shall be revealed, and together all flesh shall see. Since it's God's transcendent light, and it can't be adapted or changed, and it permeates everything, so God's light is present today. And that's true. But the way God senses himself, he can't compare, yes, the light encompasses everything, but he can't compare it to the way God senses himself. God is aware of himself. And it's that awareness that will be revealed to us during the resurrection. During the resurrection, will be the revelation of God's transcendent self. Just like God feels himself and senses himself, so we are going to experience that intimacy. So yes, true, presently God is present as well, and God's transcendent self is present and permeates everything. And it doesn't change. But nevertheless, we don't sense it. But the Mashiach, during the era of resurrection, will be the revelation of God's intimate self. Just like God senses himself, he will sense that intimacy. And this will be such a stunning revelation, such a startling revelation, such a powerful revelation, that it will have such a powerful effect that even the dead will be resurrected. A body that's been lying in the grave for thousands of years will come back to life. That's as startling as it gets. That's as stunning as it gets. 
but because at that time there'll be this revelation of God's essence, of God's intimate self. When God's intimate self is revealed, and since it's revealed without any limitation, it will affect and impact everyone without, without any variation. It will affect everyone from the simple water carrier to the greatest rabbi, mystic, and scholar. Everyone will be affected equally. Everyone will be resurrected. And the body, the physical, will be resurrected because of this revelation of God's transcendent self that will permeate everything and permeates the physical just like it permeates the spiritual. There's no barriers. There's no limits. There's no restrictions. And therefore, it will be all-encompassing that even the dead will come back to life. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.